Hello, and welcome to Content People, a podcast where we talk to creative professionals and leaders to get a behind the scenes look at their career experiences. And we try to turn that into actionable advice for you, our listeners. Tune in to hear from experts in various media and get inspired to find contentment in your own career. I'm your host, Meredith Farley. As some of you know, I used to be the COO at Rafton, where I oversaw creative project management and consulting teams. I'm no longer with the company, but Rafton is still producing this podcast. So thanks, Rafton. We recorded this episode a while ago. I think actually it might have been back in the summer. So you will probably hear me make mention of my former role. If you want to keep up with what I'm doing now, you can check me out on LinkedIn and subscribe to my newsletter. Also called Content People, which we'll link to in the show notes. Give it a shot. It's a once a week send where I share thoughts and actionable advice based on nearly 15 years of creative leadership. You can also listen, rate, and subscribe to Content People wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm here alongside Ian Serban, creative director of video at Brafton and producer of this show. Hey, Ian. Hey, Meredith. On today's episode, we talk with Brianna Dallaire, a coaching enablement manager at Wayfair, and we get into the weeds about sales coaching. Yeah, this was a really interesting conversation. Um, you know, as someone who's a manager who you know cares about learning about leadership, I've known a little bit about sales coaching and some of the sort of principles behind it, but I've actually never met or talked to someone that actually did it. As a manager, it is so cool to hear from someone whose you know main job, primary focus. It really is to motivate people and help them overcome obstacles and ultimately find success at work. She had a lot of really great insight to share with us. Definitely. Uh, I mentioned this in the show, but Brianna is actually also a really good personal friend of mine. It was really fun, also kind of funny to have like a more structured, formal combo with her and explore what she learned as a sales coach. Brianna is just such a savvy lady. Brianna, I love you and thank you for doing this episode. With all that said, we'll throw it over to our conversation with Brianna now. Hey, Brianna, welcome to Content People. Hi, Meredith. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy you came. Uh, So I'll just start off by saying that this is a slightly different podcast and that I've had the chance to talk to lots of people who are super interesting, but who I don't know very well. You are one of my best friends, so we're going to play professional people on this podcast and talk about work, but some context for the listeners, I suppose. But maybe you could start off by telling us who you are, what you do at Wayfair, and talk a little bit about the really cool content-related job that you have. Yeah, yeah. And thank you again. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's so exciting to see, you know, your friends, you know, like when they're out there doing something so cool and it's so awesome be a part of that. And so I'm really grateful to be here. Um, my name is Brianna Delaire. I work at Wayfair um, in our B2B department, business to business. And my current role is a, I'm a senior manager of the coaching enablement team. Um, so what we do is enable our frontline coaches with um, coaching content and optimized tools for coaches so that they can you know, go out there, concentrate on supporting sales behaviors, getting the best out of their teams, um, and focus less on whether or not their tools are working and more on what's really important, which is just person-to-person connection. I, okay, thank you. You have such an interesting job. I'm so excited to dig into it with you. One thing maybe I would start with, which I feel like is one of my first questions uh, when you first told me about your role is, can you explain the B2B side of Wayfair to 
folks because I always think of Wayfair B2C and I was like, who are you selling to? What is this team? Yeah, yeah. B2B is fabulous. Um, so the the majority of Wayfair, of course, is our, our B2C selling to, to customer, but we do have a branch of Wayfair where we sell direct to businesses. So someone might say, well, you know, what's on Wayfair that supports businesses? We offer so such a variety um, of of products that work really well with specific verticals. So, you know, we're selling to contractors, interior designers, we're selling to office spaces, all the way from, you know, mom and pop shops who are looking to establish themselves and start a new storefront all the way up to, you know, hotel chains and property developers. Very important question. Can you confirm or deny that the entire set of 365 days was always fair? (laughs) Are you allowed to say? I can neither confirm nor deny. But I will say that you might have allegedly pointed out that some of those items were very similarly all available on the Wayfair website. You know, I don't know who uh, manages their set design taste for sure. Well, it, I suppose it wasn't the real focus. But... <laughs> All right. Interesting. So what is the average day in the life of Brianna like at work? I don't think there is a singular average day. Um, I, you know, it really depends on what kind of what we're working on. Um, and so uh, I would say the one consistent element throughout my days is that I am connecting with a lot of different people. Um, I connect with my team daily. So I have a, a tiny but mighty team of two content developers. We wear a lot of different hats on the team. Um, but I make sure to have a connection point with them where we go over everything from, you know, what they have planned for the day to, you know, what they had done the previous night and have a really loose, you know, connection that is fun, friendly, but professionally driven. Um, And then throughout the day, I'm staying connected with our stakeholders, connecting with sales program leaders, connecting with, you know, frontline reps, connecting with our operations team and, um, you know, the, our tools team and, and all of that good stuff. And so, um, I find myself often in a project manager role where I'm the connective tissue between our uh, centralized operations team and our our sales teams. Um, and so really aligning with everyone to, to make sure we have our key objectives in mind and, and moving projects forward. I love the description of you as connective tissue. Yeah. Sure, ligaments. Um, <laughs> like a tendon. Yeah, exactly. So... What I want to come back to how much you talk to your team and how you are, you cultivate team environment in this remote world. But I'm really curious about what type of content is your team creating and how are you deciding what to create? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so a big focus um, on the training and coaching team, which is the team that I'm under in, in B2B training and coaching, um, we focus predominantly on creating content that helps our coaches selling behaviors. And so what we aim to do, and something I, I think uh, I see in a lot of different spaces is, is uh, requests tend to come to us as being sometimes complicated. And what we find ourselves asking is, how can we simplify this into a singular action? 
how can we simplify this to a point where a frontline rep is going to know how to implement this or a coach is going to know how to to enact this, you know, in coaching space. And so we're producing content that supports sales behavior, um, like how to do pre-call research, you know, where to look for, um, you know, how how to identify who to call, when to call. Um, and really making sure it's catered towards individuals and making sure it's approachable by uh, by our coaches. So kind of creating like the process documentation and how to for elements of the sales job that then the coaches take that content and they use it to, all right, guys, like here's the documentation around how we want you to be doing research around prospects. Here are the steps. And then they're kind of rolling it out and coaching the sales reps about how to utilize those frameworks. But you guys are the ones who are doing the thinking about what what has to be done and how do we present it in a succinct and readable way? Do I have that right or am I, I feel missing like I, I was like, we try to make things as simple as possible. And I gave you such a complicated answer. <laughs> what we're doing a lot is um, creating e-learnings to support new coaches on how to coach. We facilitation guides on coaching interactions. So Mayor, if you're a frontline rep on a team and I'm a coach, my team might create a facilitation guide that's super straightforward that walks you through an activity of, you know, how to support a very specific sales behavior. Um, and we also work with our tools team to optimize coaching tools to make sure they're straightforward, readable, um, and they are, you know, solving for the needs of our, our coaches. Got it. And so the coaches in some ways are kind of your client. Yeah, I, who are, um, I think our sales partners are our clients. And at the end of the day, our, our true clients, the businesses that we're working with, we have to keep their, um, their interest top of mind as well. Um, but predominantly we're working with frontline managers and we're working with coaches. Uh, we have a kind of a unique um, with coaches in B2B called the senior sales coaches. And they're entirely a team dedicated to coaching frontline reps to help support managers with, with coaching. And so we work really, really closely with them, helping to design their training curriculum for when we bring new ones on board. Um, and making sure they're holding true to our coaching methodology. Got it. So the sales team has a direct manager and then the coaches work with the sales folks and support the manager in training, process, yep. onboarding, sales behaviors. Yep, all it. that good stuff. It's kind of, it's really interesting because it's internal content, but obviously incredibly commercially important content. Um, I think a lot of times when folks think of content, they think, you know, blogs for a website or an ebook or you know, that type of uh, industry facing collateral. Yeah. How do you think internal content is different and what are kind of some of the challenges of creating it? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's something that we're always looking to innovate on and improve on. I think something that I always keep as a North Star is that Whenever you conduct a training or you have a coaching session or you're engaging with content, it has to be as valuable, if not more valuable, than that person's time connecting with their immediately be relevant. It has to immediately be applicable. And they have to know what's in it for me. Right. Um, so when we think about creating content to support managers, sales reps, coaches, 
We really want to make it action forward. We really want to keep adult learning principles top of mind. They have to know how to immediately apply it to their role. Um, and we have to make it approachable um, and, and easily understood. So we've been leaning very heavily into video. We've been leaning into audio. You know, instead of doing uh, scenarios, we're trying to, to um, uh, directly take transcripts from, from interactions with customers and, and really like make it as applicable and understandable as possible up front. That makes a lot of sense. What I, as you say it, I'm like, I kind of love these as guiding principles for content in general. When you talk about adult learning styles, can you just say a little bit more about that? Yeah, adult learning principles. So principles, sorry. Oh, there are um, learning principles for children. There are learning principles for adults. And so it's kind of like the, the difference between pedagogy when you're a kid. You're a sponge when you're a kid. You can just sit in a room. Someone can teach you geography and you can learn geography, even though it's not directly applicable to you immediately. But you learn it. Um, as an adult, we learn completely differently. So you need to, when I'm learning something, I learn best by doing. You know, you have to immediately understand the value of what you're learning and be able to apply it immediately. Um, and you need to have your objectives up front. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So kind of the, 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 the guiding framework that we use when we're, we're creating content. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like as you're talking about that, I'm thinking too about how important that is for things like internal email communications on oh a God, business. Yeah. Or, and also I would say email marketing and social media messaging too. Like you have to immediately tell people in like one breath what this is and why it's important to you. Otherwise like whoosh, moved on. Yeah, yeah. I don't care. And especially like for salespeople where I know it's like the old saying time is money, but it's true. Like. I challenge my team to say, if we're in a meeting with someone, if we're taking someone off the floor, what we're offering has to be more valuable than the amount of money they could have made on the floor with their clients. So we, at, at the end of the day, like money is king, right? So we have to be able to prove our worth. We have to be able to have a value at stake and say, this is why it's important that you read this. This is why it's important that you engage with this training. And this is why it's important that you're coaching. I, I, you could have like a little ticker on everyone's video monitor. Oh that's my God, like, how terrifying. Yeah, I love this like brutal side of you, Brianna. I love this. Yeah. Um, okay, so that makes me, but so when you talk about like pedagogy, you were a teacher for a moment. <laughs> and so I'm super curious, maybe you could kind of walk back and, you know, you are also, obviously you are a businesswoman, but you're also an incredibly talented artist and maker and the most like prolific creative working person I know. I don't know how you do all these art projects all the time. So could you talk a little bit about kind of your personal journey from art and art school to teaching and then to B2B sales enablement? Yeah, it's um I I grew up in the 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 streets of art school. <laughs> so I have a, a very unconventional background in the world of of business or maybe it's not so unconventional because, you know, artists are business people as well. But um, I went to school to be an art educator and to be an artist um, and kind of like I joke about it, but I feel just like lucky to be here. Um, 
you know, when I was early in my career, I envisioned myself as like the artist warrior, like person out here making art, changing the world. And my father has always joked that I was designed and meant to go to Harvard Business School. And to this day, he's still like, Brianna, you have to go to Harvard. Dad, we can talk about it. Um, but like, while in school, it was somewhat ingrained in me that artists are also business people. You know, anyone trying to make a, a livelihood about um, or to selling their work needs to pay themselves back, needs to pay themselves first. I had one professor, Steve Locke, who I still think about all the time. And he's an amazing artist and you should check out his work. He's super, super cool. Um, but I just remember someone being like, Steve, how do you how do you do this? And he was like, well, start with minimum wage, pay yourself at least minimum wage, take into account all of your materials, take into account your education, take into account time spent, figure it out, break it down square inch by square inch, and then price your work that way. And like one of the most straightforward lessons I've ever had about knowing your own worth. And so, you know, you learn a lot. Um, I thought it sounds like ridiculous. You learn so much in school, but you learn so much more than, you know, the curriculum. And yeah, my art school education really taught me uh, the importance of my own time. And so I, when I graduated, I was teaching for a little bit and I, you know, I went through my practicum. I left knowing I didn't really want to be a public educator, but knowing that I really love working with people and I, and knowing that I really loved um, like human interaction and bringing the best out of people. And I was just lucky enough to know someone who worked at Wayfair at the time who was like, hey, we're hiring if working with interior designers. You have an art background. You've worked in retail. Um, why don't you give it a shot? Ended up getting hired as an entry-level salesperson like, and just thinking I am going to be in this job for maybe a year. <laughs> maybe a year, because again, I had the artist warrior men mentality and then struggled with myself because I loved it. I beat myself up so much because I was like, oh, I'm just following into the footsteps my father laid for me as a child to like Harvard Business School mentality. Um, but I really loved working with people. I really loved selling. I really loved Wayfair. It's been just an amazing environment to grow up in. And so I found myself with incredibly driven, ambitious uh, managers who defined my success as their success. You know, I had um, one manager, Jess Harrington, who I'll never forget saying like, Brianna, if you succeed, it means I'm succeeding. Um, and so with that mentality in mind, grew my career at Wayfair, moved from an entry-level salesperson to a senior salesperson to an, a manager, sales manager, and then transitioned um, into training and coaching. And I've been lucky enough to develop my role in training and coaching and grow my team. And it's been just an absolute crazy adventure. I was so long-winded. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it was totally great. And I was kind of just, as you're talking, I was remembering going, like visiting you in the Wayfair office, which obviously pre-COVID yeah. and it was kind of like a magical space with like scooters or something. Yeah, inside. yeah. It's, um, you know, it's got strong startup vibes. The snacks were good. Yep. I remember the infamous, absolutely infamous. Um, well, it's kind of funny how you 
you know, you were in art education and you're still like you're in a somewhat of an educator role right now. Do you feel that way or does it feel very different from that in practice? Um, I think coaching and educating are different, like coaching and teaching are different for sure, because teaching and especially, you know, I, I went to school to teach public um, like K through 12. And so like childhood education is so different. Again, kind of how we discussed an adult learning principles. But I also think coaching is so much more about self-discovery while teaching is imparting information. And so I, I do leverage so much what I learned as an educator in the coaching space. Um, but I think my takeaways from that are, are maybe not as straightforward. I think like, I think a lot about the idea of a classroom learning space. And that's all taken from, you know, when I was a teacher, I had and I feel like I'm referencing so many people from the past, but I, I had one um, professor in school who was saying, don't forget about the importance of your walls, right? Your walls can teach. And so in a virtual setting or in a coaching setting, I'm thinking like, how can I create an environment that is also conducive to being and learning and self-discovery? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like, so when you're saying your walls can teach, he's referencing like, the things you as a teacher might choose to put up on the walls. Yeah. So, and all right. So what are, do you feel like one can create a virtual space? I suppose it would be your own workspace that is somehow coaching or teaching. Is that possible? I think what I take from that is that space is intentional. Mm -hmm. And I think you can do that in a virtual setting by creating a space, by calling it into existence. So you can say like, Meredith, so excited to meet with you today. We're going to have a coaching discussion. Like before we get into it, we can talk about X, Y, and Z, but are you ready? Like here's our goal for today. Kind of like establish the space, you know? Uh, yes, I love that. You know? I feel like so establishing the space just through like I am speaking into existence, the structure that we are going to inhabit throughout this conversation. Yes. Yeah. And like, very cool, cool. you know, or are you ready? Because it has to be an educated guess, right? Like thing is a two-way street and so much of it is uncomfortable. Like coaching should kind of be uncomfortable because it's challenging. So being in the right mental space in order to have a coaching conversation is so important. Do you mean, and also too, when you said coaching is kind of about self-discovery, you, I presume that you mean coaching is about helping the one being coached to discover and so when you say it should be uncomfortable, do you mean like the one being coached might feel a little uncomfortable? Yeah. Like, Yeah, absolutely. I'm a woman of many one-liners. One of my favorites is um, you can't grow when you're comfortable and you can't be comfortable when you grow. And that's why they're called growing pain. Um, but it's challenging, you know, especially when you're being coached on the, the right thing resistance to it because you're ingrained in a certain way right yeah. feels like you're challenging you know that it, it feels like you're challenging something that has grown in a specific way and that that always is like oh it feels weird but that's kind of how you know it's working yeah I think that's a really a very thoughtful thing and helpful to keep in mind because a lot of roles so many roles, like job specs, et cetera. You know, people are looking for a player coach. 
like their coaching has become such a, an important part of what kind of manager somebody is. Mm. And when, if you're pushing someone in a direction and you can tell they're feeling a little uncomfortable, I think a manager needs a certain amount of experience to feel comfort with their staff's discomfort oh, yeah. and to be, and to not, um, you know, kowtow to like people pleasing, smoothing things over, not having the conversation you need to have because it feels a little confrontational or a little potentially uh, just challenging, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, I think you're you're hitting on a candor. Yeah. It's like you have to care. You have to care, but you have to challenge. Um, okay, we've talked about radical candor. Would you mind defining it a little bit here in case folks aren't familiar? Yeah, really yeah. Radical candor. I, I mean, it's it's like caring implicitly, having like genuine care for someone, but also challenging them. Um, it's a, a matrix. And I'm forgetting the name of the woman who is the author of Radical Candor. I'm going to look it up. Okay, <laughs> we can't throw. It is worse. It is worth knowing. Um, um, Kim Scott. So Kim Scott is the author of Radical Candor. All right. We can throw some Radical Candor notes in the show notes for anyone who wants to check that out. The concepts of Radical Candor are so important. And I think the other thing to remember is there is like no such thing as a, a like, you don't just become a coach. Like coaching is also a learned skill. And so um, there are skills that go into being a coach and it's a practice. Um, I actually like referring to it as a practice, like my own coaching practice, because it's something that develops over time. It's a language you develop. Um, but the the core concepts of creating safe space, like a psychologically safe space to have a one-to-one connection where your coachee knows that you have the best intentions for them. So when you're challenging them, it is in an effort to see them grow. Um, and really just, you know, making sure that in a in that scenario, like if your coachee says something that's wrong, it, if you're the coach, you owe it to them to say, hey, that might not be, you know, like the right answer. But have you thought about looking at it this way? Or what's another way that you can answer that? Or this is wrong because X, Y, and Z. So like really spelling it out. What is another way that we can do it? So like a responsibility to not let things slide because of the dynamic you have both consensually entered into, which is that you are the coach, they are the coachee or mentee. Or mentee. You care about them and their performance. Yeah. And as such, you're going to be yeah. candid in a radical way. In a radical way. Otherwise, you fall into like one of the other um, uh, matrix quadrants is ruinous empathy. And that is when you basically just yes someone or if someone gives you the wrong answer and you're like, that was awesome, but then they never improve. You're never going to see improvement if you just, you know, are a people pleaser. Yeah, I mean, whenever we talk about this, I feel like I know I sometimes am conflating coaching with management, but I feel like it's just so true. So like, remind me again, the x-axis is what? What's on the x-axis of this matrix? So care and challenge care. So I say care is on one side, challenge is on the other side. And then the y-axis is what again? No, no, no. Care, challenge. Oh, care is the x-axis. 
why is the challenge. Yes, exactly. So, so you have obnoxious aggression. So let me get back to that one is obnoxious aggression is high challenge, low care. Yes. Is that exactly, right? Exactly. Exactly. Nailed it. <laughs> um, there's ruinous empathy, high care, no challenge. Ruinous empathy. Hi, you care a lot. You care almost so much about how they feel. And you're uncomfortable when they're uncomfortable. So you're not going to challenge them at all. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, and there radical candor, is, high care, high challenge. Yep. And then there's okay. manipulative insecurity. Manipulative insecurity? Or insincerity. Sorry. Manipulative insecurity. Manipulative insincerity. Oh, that sounds like a psycho one. So that is like, that would be, wait, manipulative insincerity. That would be, what's that? High, what is that one? High challenge, low care. So that would be, it sounds like you care, but you're not challenging. Like, or like, like you're not, you're not caring or challenging. Oh, no care, no challenge, just manipulative insincerity. Yeah. Um, I have to say, this is the second time I've tried to talk about a matrix with someone on this podcast. I think I'm doing better this time. The first time I, I glossed over it, but for, I, uh, I hope that there's a lot of visual learners listening. Yeah. Because, yes. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. It, I think it, I think it really applies to lots of management. And I also love how like vicious and brutal these are. I know the the nomenclature is radical, um, but I think like I'm actually interested in in the conversation around the differences between managing and coaching because in my mind I think they are different, um, and I think that we ask managers to be coaches a lot. Yeah, I think the expectation is that if you're a manager or coach, but as I said before, like being a coach is a skill and one that you you know, need to develop. It's not just like the second you become a manager, you also become a coach. Um, so I think there are like very specific differences between the two. Um, like I think managers have to be really powerful feedback givers to be able to find in the sand and say, you know, here's the situation, here's the behavior, here's the impact. Whereas coaches are really strong question askers to say, you know, what happened? What did you see? What you learned? What will you do? Um, and I think those are two very different frames of mind. Maybe I'm thinking like way too black and white, but I think those are different styles of conversations. And I think they yield different results and both are incredibly important. Yeah, totally. I think, I feel like I vacillate between the two throughout the day, depending on the relationship I have with the person that I'm overseeing yeah it's probably more junior folks i probably manage a little bit more i'm more, more like these are the four things you need to do any questions great and then for folks who are either more senior and or who i feel like have potential to continue growing into their role a little bit i'm probably doing a lot more coaching yeah uh, and just giving them tons of boring anecdotes that they're very politely listening to me <laughs> about <laughs> um what, how so you def, how would you define the difference between the two? Well, I guess you said already. Like, so like coaching is like questioning, helping them discover in themselves the uh, their own the the answers, um, and then kind of putting guardrails on it. And management is more just like 
you did this wrong, next time do this, like a little more one-sided, would you say? Yeah, I don't know that it always has to be like active or I think managers set expectations and they define terms of success and they establish goals. And you help your team by removing roadblocks. You help your team by providing feedback. You, you know, uh, you support your team in that way as a manager. And you have management conversations, right? Like there's a difference between a performance management conversation and a coaching conversation. Um, And I feel like that's kind of where the distinction comes into play. But just like you said, I think, you know, you, you, you switch, you know, you go back and forth. You can have a management conversation right before you have a coaching conversation. Hey, Mayor, I've noticed that you, there has been a drop in the amount of outbound calls that you've made. And so the goal that we have is X, Y, and Z. Let's have a coaching conversation. Let's talk about it. Or, you know, do you want to have a coaching conversation about that? It's kind of like you manage situations and you coach people and behaviors. Yes, exactly. Okay. You manage to results. You coach to behavior. Like that. Um, all right, cool. Well, let's come back a little bit to your own team and your own management style and collaboration style. So it sounds like you are doing a daily group ups with your folks. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. So like, how do you approach them? How do you structure them? What are you trying to accomplish in those moments and meetings? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, and I said this to my team, like my my goal for my team is to have them feel and be empowered so that they feel like even if they don't know the answer to something, like they're able to find solutions. They feel empowered to share their voices. I want them to basically work me out of a job. (laughs) My goal for my team is to feel like even if I'm not there, that they have things completely under control. It's a great goal. And so I I work really hard to create a, like an environment that I, you know, I trust them implicitly. Um, I have a, a new employee. She's been in the role for maybe like 90 days now, and she's already, you know, owning projects, building relationships across teams and you know, it kind of starts with day one of just uh, calling that into existence, saying, hey, I trust you. We're going to work together. You're going to make mistakes. That's okay. Um, it's not just okay. It's kind of my expectation because the only way you're going to learn is if you make mistakes. And so as a manager, I'm also a coach. Um, and I am building the behaviors of ownership and leadership. Um, strong content developers who are, you know, using critical thinking techniques and, you know, challenging for clarity and and really, really strong communicators. I think, I know we've chatted on it a bit, but I think in a remote world, those daily touch points are, well, for me, they're super important. I love talking to my team every day, even if it's not a super formal reporting meeting of any kind yeah. it's just like hey, how's it going how are you feeling how's the team feeling let's chat about xyz and i feel like it makes me feel more it reminds me that i'm working with people i'm not just working with a computer screen oh my god totally connected but i know there are some folks who feel a little bit differently and um yeah uh, i have never been a this isn't this could have been an email person really i mean maybe i just maybe sometimes i i think i uh well, no, I'll be honest. No, I haven't. I think it's because I think we've talked about this a little 
there's that essay managing oneself, which is a great classic essay. And they talk a lot about um, at one point, like, are you a reader or are you a talker? And the anecdote is that um, I think it was LBJ after Kennedy was assassinated, came into Kennedy's team and Kennedy's team. Kennedy was a huge reader. So they would put like complex, comprehensive briefs together. He would read them earlier in the morning and just know everything. He'd like absorb it, be like, good, I'm good for the day. I get it. And he'd be briefed. And they were doing the same thing for uh, Johnson, who was not a reader. And he was just like, they were like, why is he like, didn't he read the briefs? He doesn't know about X, Y, Z, but he was a talker. So he, what he needed was people to come in and like talk to him. He'd ask yeah. questions. And I always assumed that I would be a reader since I was a writer, but I am not, I'm a talker. Um, and it's helpful for me to process and talk things out because I feel like I'm going to have questions, et cetera. And, but I don't know if it comes back to like one thing I feel like we've talked about, I thought I'm really interested for your thoughts on is when we think of salespeople or leaders generally, we tend to think extrovert. Mm. I'm curious about how introvert versus extrovert impacts how you lead your teams and like what you think. Like, does one need to be an extrovert to be successful in sales? I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I don't think you have to be an extrovert to be successful in sales. I think extrovert, like I'm an extroverted person <laughs> with like, like, a, like a, a, a introversion caramel center. Like I'm, a, I'm an introverted extrovert or an extroverted introvert. I've got a little bit of both. I think everybody does. But I, I think in sales, we tend to reward people who exhibit extroverted behaviors. But just because you're extroverted doesn't necessarily mean you are a very, very strong salesperson. I mean, obviously, right? But I think mm -hmm. um, to me, strong sales folks are listeners. People who are listening to their clients, they're people who are identifying areas where their clients need help. Because the best sales are ones that clients are excited to make. Mm -hmm. And people who are excited to make sales are ones who like see the value in, in what they're buying, right? And so like with our sales team, we're working with millions and millions and millions products, right? We're working with a whole swath of types of, of clients and, and businesses that all have really particular needs, that all have different things that they value. And so if you're just the loudest person in the room, and then I'm saying that extroverts are always the loudest person in the room, they're not. Um, but if you if you're so extroverted that you forget to listen, you might sound like a great salesperson, but it definitely won't show up in your numbers. I've definitely like been coaching and listened to calls and said to myself, this sounds like such an engaging call, but why didn't it go anywhere? And then you actually think about the actions on the call. Mm -hmm. They just had a great conversation, but it didn't actually lead to a next step. It didn't actually lead to uncovering the client's need or, or anything. And so, you know, if you're not a really strong listener, you're not going to get anywhere. So if someone is an introvert and they want a career in sales, like 
what do you think they might need to be mindful of insofar as perceptions or behaviors that could help them be recognized for the abilities that they have, even if they don't fit a stereotypical mold? Yeah, I think sales is one of the one of the more beautiful uh, career paths because at the end of the day, it's all results. So even if you don't sound like what you think of when you think of a salesperson, if you have the results to show that you're effective and you're impactful, that's really all that matters. So if you're a more introverted person, I would say lean into curiosity. I would say lean into questioning and lean into listening. And if you are a curious person who is interested in learning about people who ask, you know, the right questions to uncover the needs of your clients and you, you know, are able to identify the products that they need, you're going to be a successful salesperson. Mm, I love that. Uh, that's really interesting. So kind of somewhat related to introversion, extroversion, people feeling like they fit the mold of the job that they have or want. Imposter syndrome. Number one, do you think you have it? I definitely feel I have moments of imposter syndrome. And I think part of that might come from the non-traditional background where I'm like looking around I'm oh. like, oh, my God, it's me. I, it's me. I'm making. <laughs> so, I, I absolutely respect, appreciate and have. So put so much value into my um, my education. Um, but I, I think sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, like I have gotten here from experience, you know, yeah. where where I am in my career is because of the experience that I've had and the people that have been such amazing managers and coaches. Um, so I definitely encounter moments of imposter syndrome for sure. And I think what what I. Uh, I'm appreciative of is that those are just moments, you know. Yeah, it's not like the full on like oh, every day you first walk yeah. through a wall imposter syndrome and walk yeah. out. But I think it's um, uh, that's a part of um, growing pains, right? Anytime you feel imposter syndrome is a crossroads of feeling challenged, um, and so it's a moment for myself to look at, at my own career from a coaching perspective and to provide myself some feedback um and oh you gave me question i was like is it like imposter syndrome is your very own coach yeah. if you got saying but it's uh, not the syndrome it's like the it's not that imposter syndrome is a coach what it is is the byproduct of feeling challenged and so you know when you go to a place and and like this is what our reps feel like or this is what you know anyone who is growing in a role has has most of questioning their own performance has moments of questioning their own value and their own input. And I think just as I would hope our coaches would challenge our um, our coaches to say like, hey, you know, why are you feeling that way? Or can you talk me through that feeling? Where is it coming from? Because what it is is a symptom, but it's not the cause, right? And so... You don't coach the symptom. You don't coach the imposter syndrome. But you want to take a look at like where you think it's coming from. And uh, then you can make an action plan against it. I think that makes so much sense. And I think, too, that like I feel for folks who are like 
22, 23 in their very first job out of school, everything feels so challenging sometimes because you've never encountered it. You've never worked through a moment of imposter syndrome or a moment of being like, who am I? How did I get here? Is this really my reality? I kind of wonder too, I feel like sometimes what's been helpful in the past around those things is like, you know, you read the room for a sec, you get a little validation. You're like, no, what I said wasn't insane or the way I approach this is normal. I wonder in a digital environment, how, if they, like how they get out same positive confirming feedback or reassurance. I'm sure it happens because you. Well, I I think it's interesting because I don't think feedback's passive. What you're talking about is walls talking, right? Walls teaching, where you look around, you see behavior around you, you're in an office space, you can model yourself off of someone, you can have a, you know, observe. In a virtual setting, it's so much harder, right? The lens is a distancing. It's really, really hard to say, you know, how is my performance chalking up against another person's performance or is my performance chalking up against my own expectations for this role? And so you kind of have to switch your mentality from passive to active in that case. And it is more challenging. I know, like, it's exhausting. (laughs) It can be. Being more engaged is so important to reach out and ask for feedback and, you know, get 360 feedback ask for feedback from your stakeholders, ask for feedback from your clients, ask for feedback from your manager and your manager's manager. Um, and like ask for it in the spirit of radical candor. I love, I think that's really, really good advice. Um, I love that. That's hard. I'm not comfortable. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny too. I think maybe it, another element of that is too, is being willing to give feedback when people ask and and you know figure out a way to 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 be truthful though kind yeah i think so often people might um to you know you ask someone for feedback and they might not feel for whatever reason like comfortable saying what they actually think yeah Um, and so it's like uh what did you call it being very proactive and active and engaged and asking for the feedback and then also as a colleague, being a willing participant and like providing that feedback to folks. Yeah. And asking for feedback on specific things, right? I think um, asking for vague feedback can be more harmful sometimes. I don't know if it's the right word, but like ask for yeah. on a very specific thing. And especially if you're, you know, to circle it back, having imposter syndrome, like isolate out what you're, what's triggering that and ask for feedback on it. Um, you know, we can't see, like, we need mirrors to see our, ourselves and people who are mirrors in this digital environment are our colleagues and, you know, our, our managers. So that's the only way we can truly get a good snapshot of where we are. Yeah. Um, like that's a sound bite. We should, we should save that. Oh. Uh, all right. Well, like in the last few minutes, I don't we don't have too much time left, but we've touched on the fact that you are an artist, you're a maker, you have a very creative background, and then you're in this very, um, you know, commercially focused role. How do you balance that? Sometimes I wonder, is it work for you to push yourself? Like, because you're very prolific. You do like more crafts and projects in one year than most people do in like a decade does that come that and then also sometimes I'm curious do you ever feel like 
one of your identities fits you more than the other? And how do you balance those two sides of yourself? Ooh, asking the deep questions, Mare. Uh, I don't think that I don't see the two sides of myself as two sides. It feels like a whole thing. Um, but I think um, I am a real big proponent of work time is spent in work time and then everything else is your time. And so I think time management is incredibly important, which again, a practice, not something that is perfect. Um, but, you know, really holding true to working hours, making sure they don't bleed into your own personal hour. Yeah. And then like some, a, a, a piece of, I don't know if it's feedback or reflection from my father, who is one of the wisest human beings on the planet that, um, and I think we actually talked about this yesterday, but like your mind recharges in two ways. One of them is sleep. One of them is play. And so it's an important practice in this world to figure out what your play is as an adult, because it's not the same thing when you're a kid, figuring out what is play to you. And so I really, really am uh, charged by, you know, creating and making and exploring. And it looks, I think like you, you kind of refer to how I have a lot of different creative practices, but part of that is... Um, just like following curiosity and like exploring new things and new mediums. And I am so incredibly grateful to have a, 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 a role, a job that allows me to sustain a creative lifestyle and allows and supports my artistic practices. Mm. I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. And I guess I asked that question too, thinking about people who maybe work in creative fields, creative marketing, yeah. who, who kind of struggle sometimes where they're like, oh, I thought I'm, you know, it feels a little bit like um, they're doing something adjacent to yeah. the artistic work they'd hope to do. But I think the way you're outlining it is like a really healthy mental framework for yeah. thinking about your job as something that supports your creative life as opposed to something that has to be your creative life. Well, listen, I went through all that when I was in my early 20s, when I first got hired with Wayfair. And I was like, I'm supposed to be an art, like a warrior poet. I'm supposed to. <laughs> and it was it was the concept of supposed to be that really got me. Like, that was the thing when I went back to reflect on that. I was like, who said that? Who said I was supposed to be this? Who said I was supposed to be X, Y, and Z? And what goal? Like, what? <laughs> it was myself, right? I was like, dare they say this about me? But it was myself. I was the one who was saying, your creative practices and passions are supposed to be the things that fuel you. And why? Like, to what end? I, I actually get so much more satisfaction from flexing into a part of my brain that I otherwise wouldn't have known I loved. I love problem solving. I love communicating. I love working with different types of people under a shared goal and finding solutions like that is so fulfilling to me. And it's different than the part of my brain that is like wildly fulfilled by creative endeavors, but it's me. And so I don't feel the need to uh, sequester my identity into one or the other. And I think there are elements that bleed into both. Um, and so I think anyone who's like really struggling with uh, identity 
in like professional identity and how it is um, like that concept of supposed to be. I'm supposed to be this. Take a look at what you like about one aspect of your work. Take a look at what you like about your creative endeavors and like, do they have to be each other? Is And for some people, it's yes. And that's totally fine too. But I think a lot of us feel a lot of applied pressure and we're the ones applying it. Yeah, I think that's a great, really helpful advice. And I feel like you gave some amazing nuggets of wisdom throughout this conversation. So thank you so much, Brianna. And if you, um, well, people were to like, follow you, LinkedIn with you, et cetera. Where are the best spots to look up Brianna online? Yeah, I think LinkedIn is the best, best spot. So Brianna Delaire, and I apologize. Well, I don't apologize, but I warn ahead of time. My last name is a little bit like a password. We'll put it in the show notes. Everyone can put lots of apostrophes and lowercase letters where you don't expect them. There's grammar, Mayor. There's grammar in there. Be careful. Um, but LinkedIn would be the best place uh, to connect. And, uh, you know, if anybody has any uh, resources that they want to share with me on coaching, on you know, sales behaviors and developing teams, I'm always a student, always learning, and I'm always looking to um, support my own practice. So I, I send it on back. If you want to connect with me, I'll connect with you too. And I'm, I'm so excited to grow the network. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed our chat with Brianna. Next week, we'll be talking with Jessica Holton, CEO and co-founder of Ours, a relationship health company. And we'll make a couple little plugs here to support the show. You can rate, review, and subscribe. Those things make a huge difference and we appreciate it. And if you like this conversation, you would probably like my fledgling newsletter, Content People. We'll throw a link in the show notes to subscribe if you're interested. And that's it, folks. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in touch, you can always email us at contentpeople at brafton.com. <laughs>